Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. In some ways, I'm not even sure right now exactly what kind of show this is going to be. Uh, We've been talking about that for days now. And I think what we decided was we wanted this to be the kind of show episode that you need. Uh, That obviously, you know, we've been talking for a long time about the candidacy of Donald Trump. But now the inauguration is two days away. That's sort of a different thing in some ways. So um, and I don't think today is the kind of day for us anyway to go through picking apart the inconsistencies and signs of unreadiness in, for example, Betsy DeVos's uh, confirmation hearing yesterday. I mean, there, this is the, it's the way of the world now that there are startling developments every day and things worth pulling apart. And we do that a lot here. But it seemed as though with this uh, moment, it, it might make sense to talk a little bit more about how people are feeling, uh, how people are making concrete in their minds uh, what is about to happen. <laughs> Even when I say that, I get kind of a little chill. Uh, it's not a good feeling. And and rather, anyway, what we decided to do is we would get some uh, some uh, people that we think are smart and articulate, articulate and interesting and funny and can even pronounce the word articulate uh, and um, talk to them a little bit about maybe some kind of not so specific things. Uh, so uh, joining us in just a second is Brian Curtis, editor at large for The Ringer. I recommend The Ringer in general. Uh, make a note. And then Alexandra Petri, who writes the uh, compost blog for the compost blog for the uh, Washington Post and is very funny and is author of A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. She'll join us later. She'll t- she's going to tell you about things like porta potties. Uh, there's quite a, <clears throat> a story having to do with porta potties in Washington, D.C. Uh, I mean, more so than usual. Uh, before we do anything else, I think either to set the tone or to drive potential listeners away, depending on which thing it does. Uh, Kyone Wolf and I today decided we would write a song, an inauguration song. And so I spent about an hour writing the lyrics, and then she went off and did one of her miracle things where she wrote the music. And uh, so we're going to just start off. We're going to play this song for you. Do you solemnly swear that you won't get any more divorces or replace the generals that you don't like? with horses do you swear up and down to protect and preserve not grab women's kitty parts like a perv we're all agape we're all agog with this ring we the inaug you can be the boldest the rashest and brashest we hope and we pray that you're not just a fast talking person well after today here comes the deluge Tremendous, terrific, amazing, and huge. Promise us now, with no tweets or scolding, with hand on the Bible Scott Bayo is holding, to advocate peace, to keep us from mayhem, to execute duties and not Lindsey Graham. Do you solemnly swear not to act like a creep, not to confuse ISIS with Baldwin or Streep? Do you solemnly swear you will not be beholden to WikiLeaks, Putin, or anything golden? We're all agape, we're all agog with this ring. 
weavy and nog. You can be hoity-toity, be hotsy-totsy. We hope and we pray that you're not just a not-so-nice individual. All right, that's our inauguration song. Uh, also, we welcome your phone calls over the course of this show. The number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. We want to welcome Brian Curtis, editor-at-large for The Ringer. Uh, Brian, welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me. And, you know, I mean, I th- I've been thinking about this week and how I- I've never really had major surgery, but I assume if you have major surgery, there's kind of a, a period of time when you're ty- trying to concretize it and imagine that you're going to have it. And then there's the moment when you're on the gurney and they're rolling you towards the operating room and you think, oh, this is really real. And I feel we're kind of at that moment now that whatever we made it into in our heads it's it feels even more true that Donald Trump is going to be president of the United States at a certain point on Friday. I mean, just give me sort of your set of reactions right now. Yeah, I'm not sure if the gurney is rolling toward the operating room or the morgue. You know, and I think that's my first uh, question. Mm-hmm. It's funny, a friend at the uh, Ringer yesterday said that she has just been hoping against hope that someone or something would kind of descend deus ex machina style, you know, in these next couple of days, and some tell us that somehow Trump is not going to be the president, that this is all, you know, a weird dream. And I think that's probably the fantasy that I've entertained lately, that just something will, you know, just just someone will come up with a reason, a Supreme Court justice, some kind of news anchor will tell us that this isn't going to happen. But of course, it is going to happen on Friday. And I think, yeah, I think I am now entering that kind of going from the disbelief stage to the pure dread stage and figuring how is this thing going to hurt exactly. Yeah, I think it would have to be bigger than like a news. I would have to be like maybe the aliens who gave Green Lantern his Green Lantern. <laughs> you know, maybe they could say. Yeah, I think I would trust them with <laughs> yeah. that information. Right? Yeah, and they would have some authority. They would say, this is actually we. Just as a as a universe, speaking as a universe right now, we're not going to let this happen. Uh, but uh, other than that, I, I don't think so. So uh, one thing I did, I want to ask both you and Alexandra when she gets here, too. But, you know, one of the ways that a lot of people deal with things that make them anxious is to avoid them. And, I mean, you can avoid the inauguration. You can. I, I, w- I was thinking about Friday. Could you morally defend either, you know, just as, taking like, you know, Four Drambuis and an Ativan and like just, you know, and then binge watching Black Mirror episodes or something and just like not watching the inauguration. And, and could you how much of that strategy could you apply to the ensuing four years? You and I have jobs to do. We can't turn away. But there are people who probably want to. And I sort of wonder whether that's defensible. Yeah, I think it I think it probably, you know, it's I guess it's defensible, you know, from an aesthetic point of view that you just, you know, it's more fun to watch television and, and go into some magical fairy tale world and probably as as a citizen probably indefensible. I think I tried it at some point after the election and I made it about I'm not even sure I made it 12 hours, you know, eight of which I was sleeping, right? <laughs> and then, you know, the news just kind of it feels like the, the hand is coming out from the computer, the TV, and grabbing you. No, 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 you don't get away that easy because there's always so much crazy stuff happening. Right. And it doesn't stop. And it isn't stopping this week, and it's not going to stop after Friday. I, th- I think we are all, and by the way, if you want to call in about this, 860-275-7266, we can uh, process your anxieties with you. But I think we're all sort of in a position, we're in kind of an analogous position to the position that Trump is in vis-a-vis Alec Baldwin on Saturday Night Live, which is that every week he knows he shouldn't watch that, right? He, At some level, even Trump, uh, not a very self-reflective person, probably knows that if he watches it, he's going to be appalled and hurt uh, and outraged 
and it won't, you know, do him any good. But he can't not watch it. Uh, and of course, then he'll have to issue tweets about it and everything. But uh, and we're, I think, I feel like we're a little bit in that position too. Like, there's a part of me that for a few few days ago thought maybe. Maybe I just won't watch the inauguration at all. <laughs> but I feel like I have to, just the way Trump thinks he has to watch Alec Baldwin. Yeah, and I actually, and I actually feel I have to watch it even more than I watched, you know, Obama's inaugurations, right? I mean, I remember 2008 very clearly. I'm not. Did I watch 2012? Did I, did I keep one eye on it while I was doing something else <laughs> on the computer? But this one, I feel I, I have to watch it, right? It's like it's it's compulsory in a way, you know. Like, and I think it's probably the Alec Baldwin uh, phenomenon you're talking about. You feel because it's so, it feels so dangerous uh, to to us personally you can't turn away i um do feel as though uh, somebody said this this morning too that if hillary clinton can get herself to the inauguration then the rest of us <laughs> should too and and i wonder if they're going to have like there'd be te- a temptation to just have a hillary cam the entire time right kind of you know, for the way they do sometimes with somebody's wife up in the stands in a tennis match or something, you know, like will she double over with laughter during the speech or something? I, I, I like I'm going to want to see reaction shots from her about as much as I'm going to want to see anything. Absolutely. We were talking at the ringer about you know how many body language experts should we employ for the inauguration uh, <laughs> TV. But I think, you know, even then with body language, it's just going to be so many kind of little uh, variations on stoic stares, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you and I could see Hillary stare right now. And, uh, you know, how, how much is that mouth going to move at all? You know, is there going to even be, is it even going to go to a neutral stage or is it just going to be kind of flatline the whole time? I sort of think it is. Yeah, the, she probably has somebody working with her right now, some, you know, yogic person working with, like, how she's going to stand and, and what she's going to do and how she's going to relax her face muscles. Or, or, yeah. Or, you know, the other, the other thing I, that I wonder about Donald Trump is, okay, I mean, we've all had our little laugh about the fact that he can't really get anybody to, to perform at his inauguration. We're down to, you know, some people whose names aren't even really all that recognized or recognizable or there's and there's Toby Keith and, you know, and and you but, you know, an awful lot of people, the kind of people uh, from a world in which Trump was delighted to dwell at times. I mean, the culture of celebrity has been very much the flame uh, for his moth. Uh, you know, that they all reject him. And then you sort of watch around the world. I mean, this over the course of the weekend, there were all these writers resist events like in other countries, not because of a thing we've done. It's not like we're illegally bombing Cambodia right now. There there are protests because we of who we elected. They're just scared before anything happens or outraged or worried before anything happens. And you just sort of wonder as thing after thing after thing like that piles up, whether it penetrates him at all. You know, I mean, it, I feel like he kind of has to, that he has to be aware that he's more objectionable than anybody had ever told him heretofore. Yeah, and you also wonder if it if it does penetrate, and I, like you, I suspect it does, whether it upsets him mm-hmm. or whether he just thinks, you know, here's a guy who's been unpopular, either measured or, you know, in terms of tabloid headlines for, for much of his career, and whether just seeing his name or seeing that the fact that he has caused a protest somewhere in some distant corner of the globe is actually pleasing to him, I kind of think it probably is in a way. And I think, you know, I think one thing we, we can say without, you know, without even debating is that Trump really likes attention. And so if people are sort of, you know, jump, you know, staging a protest, I'm not sure he doesn't like that. I think he probably does like that, in fact. I, I actually do think that he is probably the kind of person who 
you know, if he happened to be watching the Golden Globes and Meryl Streep began to talk about him that way, would be really surprised and taken aback. It would be the kind of thing that he, you know, if anybody had asked him an hour beforehand what Meryl Streep was going to say, he wouldn't have guessed that it would be about him and that if it had been about him, it would have been laudatory. You know, I think in a way this is surprise after surprise after surprise, finding out all these people who, you know, I mean, he tweeted that she's overrated. That's clearly probably not what he thought. If he knew anything about Meryl Streep at all, he probably hoped that she kind of liked him. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's the that's the dichotomy here, right? On the one hand, he loves attention, doesn't necessarily mind that it's negative, and on the other hand, there's a small part of him that really wants to be loved by everybody, right? They're sort of values. You know, when 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 the Duck Dynasty guy, you know, would 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 endorse him, he would have these wonderful tweets. I'll remember this forever, right? <laughs> And and clearly he's pleased by that just in the same way he's hurt by Meryl Streep. Right. And he probably thought the Duck Dynasty guy was just one rung on a ladder that went, you know, <laughs> higher. A low rung. Yeah, yeah, higher than it actually did. Let's, uh, we do have quite a few people calling in here. Here's Lori from Hamden. Hi, Lori. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? Just fine. I um, I am completely disgusted to be an American at this point. Um, I'm scared to death. But I think if this is not a time to just be able to hide in some kind of hole somewhere or not look at the inauguration or not be a part of whatever's going on, I think this is a very important time to watch everything you can and listen to everything you can and try to either stand up and say this is not going to be what I can uh, support or, you know, to sit back and, and possibly agree with maybe a half a percentage of what's going to actually happen. You know, um, I'm glad you make this point. It's something that uh, I've been dealing with, too. Brian Curtis is, uh, you know, there was that documentary about the Dixie Chicks called Sh- Shut Up and Sing. And there's sort of there are people out there on uh, on social media and elsewhere who now are saying this. Some of them are even saying, look, I didn't vote for him. But shut up. Stop talking. Get past it. Get over it. And I think that's a very odd thing to be saying. First of all, before he's even in office, before we even know what he's going to do, people are already kind of saying, well, don't be a loyal opposition. And I don't know. That seems there's something kind of un-American about that. It's very much. It's very un-American. And it's also this odd odd idea that Election Day is the kind of deadline for for getting angry, right, and for, for, for taking action or paying attention, that once we go to the vote, once we vote, it's all over. And we just have to accept whatever the result is. Well, we certainly accept it in the sense that Donald Trump will get to be president of the United States, but it doesn't mean we get to accept that every, anything Donald Trump does. Yeah, I find that very strange. And, of course, the, the person who least subscribes to that notion that um, that Election Day is, is the deadline is Donald Trump. In his most recent press conference, he still talked about Hillary Clinton as though she represented some kind of existential threat to him at one point when he's talking about Putin. He talked a little bit about what he, he would do about Putin. He goes, you don't seriously think Hillary Clinton would have done better at this, do you? <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's, and that's what's so funny about this, right, in a way, is that there was a piece in Politico about this the other day that, you know, the inauguration is our, our most high-minded moment as a country. And Donald Trump has spent the last two months being as low-minded as possible, you know, evening scores with his enemies, talking about CNN or John Lewis or whomever, whatever he's talking about. And that, I think, is what is so strange about this and what why people can't even have this moment where they watch and say, okay, I'm going to disagree with everything this guy does, but at least I'll appreciate the ceremony of the occasion. No, they're, they're, they're worked up. They're mad, just like Gloria's. All right. I want to grab uh, another call here uh, during this segment. This is going to be Lou from, I think, West Hartford. Hi, Lou. You're on the air. Hi. Um, 
I have to say that speaking about how people have reacted emotionally to Donald Trump, well, in me it inspired a sense of political agnosticism, as it were. Um, from the first debate in the first prime in the primary where we had Jim Webb and Hillary on the stage, I was sure Hillary was going to take it. I wasn't uh, I wasn't necessarily happy about that at all times, but I was certain she would take it, and I was certain that Trump was uh, not a threat uh, because of that. Um, but uh, I had, I had, when he won, it shocked me so much that I realized uh, that I just don't know what's going on, that the sources I had relied on, the pundits and the polls, had uh, left me pretty much ignorant of what the potential outcome would be, and that my own personal appraisals had failed me. <laughs> and uh, one thing I know for certain now is that each time I thought that Trump was out. I was wrong, right. and that I've consistently underestimated what he's capable of. And uh, so I, I've uh, sort of convinced myself that the rational thing to do going forward is that as little as I think of the man personally, and as much as I wish that if he hadn't been elected, uh, I have to take him issue by issue and day by day and uh, try to force myself to... Uh, Stop being wrong about him. Um, um, yeah, the one the one thing that you know is that you don't know anything, uh, which is what we've all had to deal with. And Brian Curtis, I, I have to say personally, one of the few areas of healing that I've done, the, one of the few areas of, of evolution and healing that I've had any success with since Election Day is gradually getting over my bitter break up with Nate Silver, which he's not aware of, you know, but it's like, you know, I listened to all the podcasts, all the 538 podcasts, and I read all the posts and I, you know, and I read lots of other stuff too, but like I would go back and I would think, well, this is, they're so dispositive, right? They really, you know, they aggregate stuff and they've, you know, they've got this formula, they've got this model. You know, I knew about that. There's different models. I knew about all that stuff, you know, and then after the election, I really broke up with Nate. I thought you are just not the man you said you were. (laughs) <laughs> You're living a lie. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I had the same, the exact same reaction. And that's what another irony of this is, right? We go to this election, and we all had, even us members of the media, right, had this moment where we said the media didn't know anything. They just, they led us astray. Nate and everyone else, every data journalist led us astray. But now we need the media more than ever, right? You know, if we're going to pay attention, if we're going to sift through every remark and, and every, you know, inconsistency of the Trump administration, now is when we need reporters. No, so I, now the I, yeah. same people we broke up with, we are now pushed back into this, you know, we have a dozen roses and say, please take us back. Please take us back. Right. Well, I don't know. Please take us back. But it's like, yeah, I saw Harry Enson tweet the other day. He's part of 538. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. And then I went over to 538. And it was sort of like telling your, you know, you're like, I feel like I've been dating this quarterback, this guy who said he was a football quarterback, except it turns out he wasn't, you know. And, and now it's like, OK, you can come in and sit on the couch, but don't touch me. Don't, you can't touch me. <laughs> Yeah, he played a couple years of JV ball. That was it. Right. Yeah. So, like, you know, I'll I'll read five thirty eight, but I mean, it's it's. I don't think it's ever going to be the same. But that, I mean, in in response to Lou's call, it did happen to all of us. All of us, to some degree or other. We make our livings telling people that we know a little bit more than they do. We spend a little bit more time thinking about it or reporting on it than they do. And, and you know, it wasn't just 538. It was was all of us, to whatever degree we pretend to have some expertise, uh, you know, fundamentally didn't understand things. 
Yeah, and it's a great it's a great lesson because now we all have access to so much more media than we ever did. Those of us who remember the newspaper and news magazine era, right? And it does give us this false sense that we know everything. And then something like the election happens and goes, oh, wait, we could read everything. We could consume every bit of information and know nothing at the end of the day. All right. One more call in this segment. Uh, it's from Ian in, I think, Westerly. I can only see the word Wester up there. So you might be in some Western place. You might be in Westerly, Rhode Island. I don't really know where you are, Ian. You got it. Yeah, okay. Good. I'm in Westerly, Rhode Island. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I uh, I didn't vote for Trump. Um, and I've been trying to reconcile, like, you know, what's my part in this? What, what am I going to do? And... Um, MLK, Martin Luther King Day really kind of brought it home for me. Um, and, and one moment that really struck me was listening to Nina Turner. Um, it was really exciting hearing her speak. And, um, you know, at some point I looked at my wife and I said, you know, this idea of making America great again, um, you know, he may not, um, it may not be his idea of making America great again. It might be up to us. You know, it's, it's, it's us kind of reaffirming our commitment to the institutions that we are at the stake of losing. You know what I'm saying? I think that's a great point. Uh, that, that, I mean, I sort of want to say to him, could you leave and then we'll make America great again? But, but, but you know, Brian, he's right in the sense that we act as though the Trump presidency were this elephant sitting on the highway or on the train tracks. We just can't get past it. Uh, but that's probably not true. I mean, there really may be some opportunities and ways in which we're forced to confront ways in which we haven't maybe even upheld our own idealism and our own beliefs and, and that we can pursue that even and maybe even more feverishly under the umbrella of a Trump presidency. Yeah, I mean, it forces you to actually think what, what, what does make America great, right? Which is probably not something we always often really think about all that much. You know, we probably think about the narrow sort of policy things that D.C. usually focuses on, uh, but not really what our definition of that is. And boy, if the Trump presidency helps us articulate that and then go after it, wonderful. Oh, we, one more thing I want to talk to you about in this uh, segment is, you know, this uh, we've heard a lot about the pendulum. Right. Um, and and this this notion that Trump's ascendance was at least in some way. I mean, it does appear to be a 180 degree reaction to having, you know, a, a smart, articulate, uh, highly educated, cool tempered black and cool president uh, to have this short fused, hot tempered uh, white guy who seems to be uh, orchestrating some kind of recrudes- recrudescence of, of white guys. Not that they ever really, you know, lost that much ground. But um, but that reason. And, and there's also, of course, this question of whether or not Trump reconfigures our notions of what you have to be before you are a president. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, when you look when you think about that pendulum swinging, ideally, within the next four years and in, in the opposite direction, you know, you kind of wonder, well, what's the opposite direction from this? It's not probably just back to another Barack Obama. No, probably not. You know, there was this rumor that Mark Zuckerberg might run for president. Right. He's going on this 50-state listening tour, a la Hillary Clinton, <laughs> uh, to, to take the pulse of the nation. I should think, you know, I think it's really funny. I think your point about Trump is exactly right, but I think it actually starts with Obama, because I think, in a way, Obama's sort of classic president. He's a senator. He's Ivy League educated. But I think he really pushed the idea of what, what was possible in a presidential election. You know, it was so surprising and shocking and, for a lot of us, wonderful. And then, you know, then along comes Bernie, right? Then come a lot of Republicans like Trump that you would never think. And, and I think what, 
what has happened over the last eight years is we've just really expanded the idea. So to anybody who is a billionaire looking at these results, they think, oh, why not me? You know, if Donald Trump can get elected. So, yeah, I, I do sort of wonder, though, the liberal billionaire is a really interesting place for the pendulum to swing, whether it's Zuckerberg, whether it's Mike Bloomberg who's talked about it. Maybe that's where this goes. Well, I don't know. Zuckerberg's strategy has to be, he has to spend the first two years convincing people he's not Jesse Eisenberg. Like, <laughs> like he's a person other right. than the person. Because when you say the name, I still mentally picture Jesse yeah, Eisenberg. Yeah, some might be disappointed that he's not. Got to get over that, too. Yeah, I don't think that will be the case. Uh, all right, so we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to have more to say here in advance of uh, the inauguration. I've been talking to Brian Curtis. Uh, he is uh, from the wonderful, uh, fairly new site, The Ringer, where he is editor at large. All right, we're back. We're taking your calls and talking to you uh, two days in advance uh, of the inauguration. I should tell you why you're d- while we're doing this two days in advance of the inauguration. Tomorrow, and we sort of put this on the calendar a long time ago. I think it probably is a good thing. Uh, but we've for a long time wanted to see whether it was possible. If you know anything about this show, you know would know why we were the show that wanted to do this. But we wanted to know whether it was possible to do what I basically call radio for the deaf. That people who can't hear obviously can't hear radio. Most people who have been deaf all their lives don't really know what a radio show is like. Um, they may be able to experience through some forms of closed captioning, but there's lots of ways in which that doesn't work. And we realize that with Facebook Live, we suddenly have a low bar to entry in terms of creating streamable video that can be accessed by anybody. So tomorrow, for the first time, and we hope we'll do it more times than that, we're going to do a show that you will hear if you can hear my voice right now. But if you can't hear my voice right now because you're deaf, you'll be able to experience the show through uh, ASL, American Sign Language, on Facebook Live. Uh, you'll get the whole show that way and um so anyway that's that's why we're not talking about the inauguration tomorrow we're talking about we're going to do something exciting and hopeful uh because this possibly could be something that that other stations wind up doing all right so i'm talking about uh the inauguration we're talking about the inauguration and everything that goes with it all the psychological baggage that goes with it with brian curtis editor at large for the ringer you know um brian one thing that the ringer does in a really nice way is combine uh, a, a bunch of uh of disciplines of uh, sports and culture and politics and and i do feel one of the things that i've been talking to people about lately is the notion of the floor this came up yesterday i was talking to constitutional scholars who were sort of saying, well, you know, I mean, the Constitution can be reinterpreted by the Supreme Court in lots of different ways, but there are sort of floors below which we don't go. I mean, we're not going to, you know, reinstitute slavery. Uh, We're not going to, you know, we're not going to declare ourselves a Christian nation. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure (laughs) that all those floors are intact. But I think floors are really important over the next four years in the way that culture sets them up, too, that there are things that you can't say are true because they're just absolutely not true. There are values that we hold dear uh, that we're just simply not going to violate or agree to violate in any particular way. And and it feels to me like the the humanities and, and the arts hold those things together. I mean, when I think about the things that I'm eager for or relying on a lot over the next four years, it's kind of almost over there as much as if not more than the political establishment. Like, just keep reminding us who we are as human beings. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. And I think it's sort of, it's, it doesn't become, those things don't become an escape from politics, as we often see them, right, or they're often pitched to us. But they become something that reminds us, you know, it, 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 it sort of helps translate politics, uh, doesn't it? 
in a way. And I think, you know, when you talk about the floor, it's really funny because it's like we just don't know what that is at all. You know, we don't know how much of Trump's rhetoric he even intends to try to carry out, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like he has this obvious rhetorical strategy of saying something really outrageous that he doesn't always intend to be the actual answer and then negotiating back from it. So the floor could be what Trump initially says, or it could be the thing that's, you know, two inches to the left of that that is still totally unacceptable, but when pitched against Trump's original proposal seems, you know, reasonable, or somewhat reasonable. It's yeah. really hard to tell. And that's why I think, you know, for the arts and the humanities, I mean, they approach this in a much more ineffable way. I mean, I don't know, this weekend I rewatched, for no particular reason, Shakespeare in Love, with that great Tom Stoppard script. And, you know, I mean, it's not that it has anything to say about what the floor is going to be during the Trump era, but somehow or other just, you know, the way in which you know, everybody's kind of ravished by these immortal words and, and, and all these people are very uh, enthused to be creating the things that they create. I, I thought, you know, that can be as good a vitamin shot as anything. Because as you say, we don't really know where the really fundamental challenges to our value system are going to come if they come. We don't we can't locate that specific area. It's better to just, I think, be strong and, and have sort of a, an agreed upon set of terms and values. Yeah. I want to by the way, I want to see the Amazon bestseller list of what the Trump <laughs> inauguration sends us roaring back to, you know? Is it Shakespeare in Love? Is it Crash? what best picture winner are we gonna are we gonna find ourselves re embracing in the Trump in the Trump era? You know perfectly well it's going to be post-apocalyptic dystopias. <laughs> Water world. Yeah. Yeah. And porn. Um, all right. Joining us now is Alexandra Petri. She uh, is the uh, writer that we often have on from the Washington Post when we need somebody to uh, give us a chance to smile about uh, com- complicated and challenging things. She writes the Compost blog for the Washington Post. She's the author of A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. Uh, Alexandra, welcome back to our airwaves. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, maybe I'll begin with the same question I asked Brian Curtis, who's also still with us, editor-in-large for The Ringer. Um, you know, that, that whole question of, of whether it's Inauguration Day or it's aftermath, you know, do you we, – we all have certain options, you know. I mean, you could conceivably – put on one of those sleep masks that shuts out all light and, and some earplugs and, and lie on the ground in a fetal position until it's Saturday. But do you think there is some kind of obligation to stay engaged with all this stuff? Well, I think it's no coincidence that we've suddenly got all this wonderful virtual reality technology <laughs> just in time for the Trump inauguration. But I do feel like we should get out of ostrich mode where we're sticking our head in the sand, our favorite, most exciting kind of entertainment sand, and actually notice that this is happening. Because otherwise, when we wake up, we'll be even more alarmed by everything that's going on. Yeah, you had this sort of levels of denial concept uh, that you applied to fashion, I think. Explain how that works. Well, I think you can go into it and say, ah, this is clearly happening, and I'm going to have to adjust my body for the new Trump era. Like, I've started doing uh, exercise because I think, you know, maybe if I have abs strong enough to, like, break a small child's face, they will save me and they will spare me when they come looking at women and removing all who are sixes or below. So, you know, you can take a proactive action like that. But there's also the, well, DC socialites, maybe nothing's going on attitude where you got your gown already. What else are you going to do? Then wear it and be polite. And then there's the attitude where you accessorize yourself with like a couch and sweatpants or sackcloth and ashes, depending on your level of protest involvement. But I think there's many ways to respond to the new developments. 
Um, you know, with that in mind, Brian, let me ask you, what, what are you actually going to do on Inauguration Day? Do you have like a watching strategy? Is the ringer going to like order out or what are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, that's another good, that's another interesting question. What is the proper food pairing or wine pairing with uh, <laughs> Trump inauguration? Uh, no, I, th- I think it's like I'm going to be in a, in a sealed chamber with my eyes directed. I mean, it's only, the thing is, the Maggie Haberman of the Times reported that his speech is going to be less than 20 minutes. So it's sort of blink and, and you miss it, right? I mean, you can't, it's not like the Oscars where you settle in for a four and a half hour, you know, long evening of entertainment. This is going to be quick. We got to keep our eyes peeled. Uh, um, well, after you eat, you probably have access to a nice, clean bathroom, but not everybody in Washington, D.C. does. And so, Alexandra, I, I, was, I only became aware of this kind of because of you today, which is sort of a horrible thing to say to someone that I only became aware of a, a porta potty issue because uh, <laughs> of you. But explain the whole thing with, with, with what they've had to do with the porta potties. Well, that's not usually how people become aware of porter potties through me, so I'm glad, actually. Yeah, yeah. This is a news-related thing. Yeah. Well, as they always <laughs> say in D.C. stories, it's not the giant pile of manure that's associated with your name. It's the cover-up. And I think the people were stunned to see that Don's Johns were getting taped over. And it turns out that this actually isn't because Donald Trump saw his name on a giant pile of feces that wasn't directly something he'd said and got upset, but in fact was because they had this thing about you can't advertise during inauguration and they wanted to get rid of like brand names for taping purposes, which is a much less sexy version of it. But I do like that the sort of pun names for Porto Johns are finally getting the spotlight that I've, I've long felt they deserved. Yeah, so I no, you you just directed it for me. I didn't realize that. I thought that so there is this company called Don's Johns, and they are you know number one in the number two business or whatever. And I mean they're like a big company, right? And 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 their names are being taped over. I thought that was to spare his feelings. That it's not to spare his feelings. I mean, everything that we do now is to spare his feelings. So to that extent, it is. But I think it's also an advertising policy, which disappointed me so much. I thought, man, it's it's because this is one piece of garbage Donald Trump doesn't want to have his name on. But no, in in fact, it was not that. Well, we also have to talk a little bit about the way this this week, you know, not necessarily delving into the specifics of it, although we very easily could do that. But uh, one of the ways in which I mean, it feels as though in terms of information, in terms of things to react to, things to process, one of the things that this political season has done is just constantly flood the zone. Right. You can't ever concentrate on one thing. There's so many things going on. Uh, And um, so uh, Brian Curtis uh, Alexander earlier had written that that she was like some movie supervillain. She had like five TV screens on so she could watch all these confirmation hearings like oh my little friend Jeff Sessions um, and but I mean it, this is sort of weird that in fact you know if you've been in the news business for a while there are periods of time where you really struggle for something to write your column about or whatever I, and this is just like this circus that's too big to see all the stuff yeah and I think that's probably a deliberate strategy at some point you know at some sense in, in Trump you know he loves information overload right he loves alternate stories so if you're if you're paying attention to this hey look over here look at this and you know usually with cabinet appointments where you're talking about you know we have maybe one you know domestic employee who has unpaid taxes but this feels like we have a whole laundry list of things and you can't even you can't even really keep up uh with who's doing who there was you know it's one today in the new york times that you know somebody allegedly uh one of the trump appointees allegedly punched somebody you know <laughs> okay you know that's that's different that's new 
uh, I don't I don't really know how to process it. I don't have a strategy for that. Right. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember and to have been a journalist during the time when Bill Clinton was having a great deal of difficulty getting one attorney general and yeah. kept nominating various other attorney generals. But And that was like a big thing, and it was all anybody paid attention to. And that's just not an option right now. So, Alexandra, as you conduct your uh, supervillain strategy, I mean, are you like falling in love with certain storylines and then running around? You want to talk about Betsy DeVos, but everybody else wants to talk about Rex or or, or, or Mad Dog? Well, every so often I'll miscalculate. So I was like, guys, isn't it fascinating that Elaine Chow said 16 times in the course of her hearing, I look forward to working with you? And everyone said, no, that's that's not fascinating. You should not be focusing on that. But I do think the effort to follow all of these stories, it really is more than a laundry list. It's like my laundry list where I haven't done my laundry in like six months and there's a giant pile and it's sort of taken on sentience. Like that's the laundry list of issues we have. I've been trying to sort of watch as many confirmations as possible, both on Twitter and in my human eyes. And so I sort of feel like the fly in the sense that the world is just 64 refracted screens and I can melt things with my acid spit. Is that a thing that happens to the fly? I'm assuming that it is. but Well, you have to vomit on it and then you eat it, basically. There's so much news and all of it's bad and it's difficult. Yeah, and I, I do feel as though everybody's trapped in the same matrix to a certain degree. Uh, anyway, I mean, Brian, I don't know if you caught this, but uh, last I can't think we have to say last evening because the Betsy DeVos hearing was scheduled for 5 p.m. Uh, and at one point, one of the senators from my state, uh, Chris Murphy, was asking her, you know, if she would commit to the notion of a ban on guns from school that guns don't need to be in schools. Schools can be gun-free zones, and she cited the possibility based on something that somebody else had said that uh, there might be grizzly bears. Uh, and that there might need to be a gun because of a grizzly bear. And you can sort of imagine the senators, you know, because they're in the same matrix with us, thinking, did you just say grizzly bears? <laughs> right. It's, it's the right to arm bears. <laughs> You're right. It's coming or bear arms against armor bears. Yeah, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's very funny because I I do think they're in exactly the same they're in exactly the same boat, you know, and they and of course they're being prodded by AIDS. Like, hey, did you hear what happened down the hall? You know, yeah. um, I think it's funny because part of what we're processing too is all these new, not only all these new nominees, many of whom we're not familiar with, but also people who have become the kind of star interrogators of the nominees. Right now, Franken was one mm-hmm. with Betsy DeVos, who yeah. seems to not only have a really great command of policy, perhaps more than the incoming education secretary, but also a really good grasp of comedy, you know, and those are maybe the two things you really need to survive a Trump administration. Yes. No, Al used his five minutes uh, really well. Well, you know, I mean, Alexandra, I also have to ask you, uh, since you are there in Washington, a couple of Washington-based questions that don't have anything to do with porta-potties. One of them is this whole idea of, like, the you can't buy a dress in the dress shops and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, is, in fact, uh, Washington commerce basically paralyzed and or tapped out by the enthusiasm for this event? Well, I think kind of the exact opposite, as far as I can tell. They interviewed somebody at a dress shop who said they never had lower demand. And uh, unless my new theory is that all the hotel rooms and all the dress shops are full of wonderful ghosts who are only visible to the pure in heart, who are taking up all these seats but are not detectable in any way by those who like uh, the fake news or something like that, because there's no other plausible explanation for why everything is sold out and there's never been more demand, but also simultaneously the exact opposite is true. So if I wanted to go down there right now and put on a dress and go to a hotel room, I could do that? That's what you're telling me. I think you could do both, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, All right, we're going to take a quick break here. Well, actually, before we take a quick break, Alexander, I should talk about to ask you about the other thing. This is sort of grim, 
Although I guess it didn't come out all that grimly, but I mean, somebody did basically try to set himself on fire in Washington, right? Yeah, in front of the Trump Hotel. And the Trump Hotel has been remarkably unruffled by all these things. I think they described it as a YouTube stunt gone wrong, which that's certainly one way of describing an act of protest. Right. Okay. So uh, we'll take a quick break. The guy apparently wasn't all that harmed. I mean, in fact, I think we do. We have the clip. We have a clip. He, he, if if you can give an interview after setting yourself on fire, I guess you could sort of say it went well. I don't know. Here he is. I was trying to light myself on fire. Why were you as an act of protest? As an act of protest. A protesting what? To protesting the the fact that we've elected somebody who is completely incapable of of respecting. The, the Constitution of the United States. Yeah, maybe that was actually a YouTube stunt gone wrong. wrong. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with more after this. When people tell me to stop opposing Trump, I tell them he's opposable, unlike your thumbs. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Testy Fisher, and the part of Bill Curry was played by the Rockettes. Find all of our shows archived at wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, accessibility with a twist. And now... Back to Colin. By the way, I mean, although we've been having a lot of fun working with the deaf community and with our interpreters uh, to get this ready tomorrow, you cannot believe how complicated. I sort of thought this was going to be like this really easy thing to do. Not really easy, but I thought, it, you know, I had this kind of estimate of like how hard it was going to be, which was way, way off. Um, you know, we're going to figure out how to do it so it's going to be much easier in the future because we want other radio stations uh, nationally to think about doing this. But um, at the moment, it's... <laughs> We keep we keep having these planning sessions where it turns out we just haven't even thought this through the right way. Anyway, I'll try to explain all that to you tomorrow. Uh, I just me now. Thanks so much to Brian Curtis and to Alexandra Petri, two of my favorite people uh, in the world of journalism. Uh, and but I think it's just kind of you and me in the phones right now. Uh, my number is eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. That's eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. We've got you know maybe a little less than ten minutes here left. If there are specific anxieties that you have or ways that you're trying to figure out how to get through uh, the next few days uh, and the days that uh, are to come, uh, you can call in. Or maybe you don't see this as that big a problem. We'd love to hear from that kind of person, too. 860-275-7266. Here's uh, Jim in Newtown. He's been holding for a while. Jim, thanks for uh, getting on the line. Hello, Colin. Thank you for taking my call. And I'll be as brief as possible. My concern has to do with disinformation waged by this man, President Mr. Trump. Uh, as some of your listeners may know, Alex Jones, who runs the InfoWars website mm-hmm. and has a syndicated radio show on over 150 stations and reaches racks up hundreds of millions of views on YouTube, Alex Jones has spent years promoting the lie that claims that the murder of 20 children and six educators here in Newtown did not happen. Donald Trump sought him out, went on his show for an interview, and then after the election called him to and, and further endorsed him saying you're amazing and said i will not let you down and thanking you for support this is a betrayal so profound that i cannot even put it into words we're going now from a president who came to our town in our darkest hour for the whole country to a president 
who endorses a man who denies what happened here. And the problem is, Colin, this Alex Jones, he reaches a lot of people. And when someone showed up with a gun at Comet Pizza in D.C., that was a terrible thing. But with, with Trump surrounding himself by, with fellows like Flynn, who has never apologized for that disinformation, and with Trump continuing to, to – failing to disavow Jones, failing to – all he has to say is, you know what, that's not true, by the way. His lack of doing that means all those people who listen to Jones have only reason to think like, wow, I guess Trump doesn't really think this really happened in Newtown. All I can say is, Donald Trump, don't you ever – ever set foot in Newtown. Thank um, you for taking my call. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, thanks for calling in. I mean, I did a whole column about this this past Sunday, the fact that he's done a lot of this kind of thing. Um, one of his favorite uh, things to do is to uh, precede a statement that is unverifiable and basically untrue with um, people are saying, or a lot of people say. Uh, and and yes, he, he has engaged with Alex Jones, uh, one of the other things he did after the Orlando shooting, you may recall that he went on a couple of different shows, including the Today Show, saying that there was something going on with Barack Obama that, you know, maybe he gets it, maybe he doesn't want to get it. There's something going on with him. He, he kept kind of hinting at the notion that uh, Barack Obama was uh, unable to uh, to denounce uh, violence by Muslims because there was something going on with him that people didn't know. Obviously, he's also the, was the point man for the birther story uh, for years. But there have been a lot of these uh, saying that Ted Cruz's father was involved in the assassination uh, of John F. Kennedy. There's a, I, if you go back to the column I wrote, there's an even longer list of them. It's sort of what made it bitterly ironic when he seemed so wounded when the news about these intelligence briefings and the dossier that accompanied them went out and had some scandalous and unverified uh, stories about him. He seemed, seemed so wounded by uh, that and so outraged by the way that the news media had, had carried this. He's done nothing but. He's done nothing but traffic and that kind of thing for a really long time. So, yeah. Uh, and if I lived in Newtown and knew those families, I'd be even more troubled than I am by this. But I'm very aware of his alliance with Alex Jones and what Alex Jones has trafficked in. So thanks for that call. Uh, Michael in Hartford. Hi, Michael. Hi. How's it going? It's going okay. I love listening to your show. <laughs> but I do have a little bit of an alternative because I, I kind of started listening to Alex Jones, too, as just for amusement, really, because mm -hmm. I thought it was hysterically funny. Mm -hmm. And I kind of started, I guess, believing some of it, because I think a lot of the, there was a lot of lies around the Iraq war. Obviously, we all know that, but also Bush and then 9-11, I believe, too. So, And I, I was surprised that he liked Trump. So I kind of, I must admit, I liked Trump because he, he was an entertainer that I liked, and I, I kind of thought he was funny, and I didn't. Being a white guy, I'll admit, I wasn't that offended, and I, 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 I thought he was joking half the time that people said he was actually serious. Like the disabled guy, if you watch that, he really wasn't making fun of people in his mind that were disabled. He was making fun of that guy. He didn't really connect that it was making fun of disabled people because he's brash and everything. But I excused him for a lot of that because he, he has done a lot of great things. Exposing the media as a complete fraud to me was absolutely wonderful because I think they've been complicit in getting us in these endless wars. And he's against that. He's not a neocon. He's fighting, fighting them off tooth and nail. But we ought to give the guy a chance now. He's president, and I, I really don't like all the 
the naysaying that much to the point where they're making him illegitimate because obviously he's not illegitimate. We voted for him, you know. Well, I think I think. I mean, listen, you know, even on that level, I think there's a, a fight to be had about the floor of information. So this is a guy who lost the popular vote by three million votes, won one of the narrowest electoral vote victories in, in, in presidential history, certainly in the bottom third in terms of percentage of electoral votes gained. Uh, he's coming into office with a very, very low uh, approval rating. And he says it was a landslide and he says everybody loves him. And I think it's fair. And, and, and we on top of all that, of course, we now know that he got some kind of assistance. He may not have sought it out, but he got some kind of assistance from Russian intelligence. He got, in my opinion, unwarranted assistance from James Comey. So piled on all that, to have this guy say, well, I won in a landslide, and to have his, his campaign manager, Kellyanne Conway, say the same thing, that it was a landslide. It's not a landslide. It wasn't a landslide. He doesn't have that kind of mandate. So that may be one reason, Michael, why you hear people like me object to that. And, and in fact, I, I like the objections, 90 percent of them, but some of them are just so absurd. It turns everyone off. Like, you know, the fact that he can't say anything about the civil rights leader 50 years later that he did his thing. I mean, you know, the guy is trying to illegitimize the president. To me, that is not right. And I don't think Trump is wrong to lash out the way he does. And he, he really didn't say anything that bad, but everybody said, oh, oh, oh you know, get all upset. And, and that makes the conservatives even more hardened. So if you if you attack on absurd levels, like Trump is mocking disabled and not saying all these things that aren't really true, it just hardens the other side, you know? But, but presidents, but I have to cut you off just because we're running out of time, but presidents aren't supposed to pop their cork every single time something happens that they don't like. That's not what presidents have traditionally done. I said this this morning, but one of the things that Donald Trump could have very easily done about with John Lewis to say, you know what, I don't want to fight with John Lewis about my legitimacy. I want to work with John Lewis. He's going to be surprised at how many things we agree on. You know, I admire his service in the civil rights movement. We're going to work together on stuff. But he can never do that. He's I've never seen him do that once in response to things that he didn't like. If he can't develop that capacity, ultimately, it seems to me he can never be presidential. If the only thing he can do is act like a snake who's been stepped on, he can never really be presidential. Anyway, thanks to everybody who helped out today. Thanks for the guests. Thanks for the producers. We'll be back tomorrow. Carrying, bearing weight, but I, I love this city, this state, this country is too large, and who's ever in charge? You better take the elevator down and put more than change in our cup, or else we...